Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I have in the beach shack a former lifeguard, Josh Burke. Now he speaks about growing up with a father who was an elite athlete back in the day and the difficulties he had as his teachers at school thought he should be as good as what his father was at football. So he had struggles which turned to alcohol and drug abuse and he also talks about how he's got himself through that stage and now, to his credit, has been 17 months without any substances at all, which is great to hear. So now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Josh. This week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. I've got Josh Burke. Berkey, how are you? Good, Hop. Thanks for having me, mate. Mate, I thought I'd get you to talk about, you know, there's a lot of people out there that grow up and their parents are great sportsmen or, you know, they're famous actors and trying to deal with that. So you've got a really good story and I've worked with you a lot down there as a lifeguard as well. So, mate, we'll start off early days. You, you grew up in the eastern suburbs? Yeah, so born and bred Bondi boy, but, you know, spent my time all around the beaches. So I was born at a hospital in Sydney. I can't remember the actual name, but... So I was taken back to my old man's and where my mum were living, which was the Mill Hill Hotel. So grew up in a pub. Dad was a professional footy player. So, you know, grew up in the pub after his footy career and um, and went to school at Waverley College till year 12. And mate, I've always been around the East. I don't want to leave. Can't leave. It's impossible. <laughs> mate, now we'll start with um, your dad to paint the picture. So Matt Burke is your dad. And he was a part of Wallabies, the invincible team back in the early 80s. So maybe tell us a little bit about that and then uh, we'll go through from there. Yeah. So, yeah, my old man's Matt Burke. Now, there's actually two. So um, there's the Channel 10 newsreader. He was the fullback. We call him the imposter. Great guy, though. <laughs> and then there was my old man, Matt. So dad played from 81 to 87. He was a part of the 84 Grand Slam tour that won all their matches over in the UK. Alan Jones was a coach, had guys like David Campisi, Mark Eller, you know, the greats, all-time greats. So he his professional career, you know, like Waverley College is a very rugby-orientated school. He played first 15s there from, I'm pretty sure, the age of 15, which is young. So he played first 15 at Waverley, then moved across to Ramwick, played first grade Ramwick. And then around... I think he might have been 1920 he got selected for the Wallabies and started off his career and you know it was pretty successful he played in the 84 Grand Slam like I said played in the 87 World Cup she scored a few tries against France made very successful successful career and actually at that time Hop, rugby union wasn't a professional sport so they didn't get paid at all so I'm pretty sure he was a um he was working as a tiler a roof tiler 
and, you know, being a tradesman. And when my brother was, I think my mum had just fallen pregnant with my older brother and Manly had approached him and said, look, we'd love you to, you know, switch codes. And back in that day, going to rugby league was like a big no-no, you know. Rugby union was a gentleman's sport. League was for, it just wasn't what union was back in the day. But dad had a family to support and he made the switch across and, Played really well there too. So at one point he was the highest paid professional in the NRL. Played for Manly, then went to over to the Chooks Roosters, and then finished his career at Balmain. Yeah, it was a remarkable career. Now, what as you grew up, and then you realised what your dad had done, did you feel any sort of pressure, or kids at school putting the pressure on, thinking that you're now going to be the next? You know, Bert coming through as as a yeah the, the wallaby. Yeah, so me and my dad are very similar, as you know, Hop. Like we, we speak the same, same kind of body language. We're pretty much identical twins. The one thing that's not identical is the rugby gene. Um, I got none of it. I am useless at footy. You know, so and from my dad's defence as well, his old man, my grandfather, was very rugby orientated like that that's all you do is you play footy you play Saturday you play Sunday you train four nights a week and I don't think dad wanted to do that to me um, or to my older brother he kind of wanted us to choose our own paths and I played soccer from the age of four to 12 and was quite good at it and to put it into perspective I was doing really well in soccer and I moved to Waverley and instantly changed to rugby because I felt like that's what I had to do to live up to the Burke name and um, was not that good at it. And, you know, you go down to Death Valley, we call it Queens Park, and you go into the pavilion, there's a photo of my dad, my uncle, both representing Australia, and I was playing in the Ds. (laughs) (laughs) So it's the pressure was immense and there were still teachers at at Waverley that had taught dad that were expecting massive things from me and I just didn't really have the gene to play footy it just it wasn't my kind of sport I loved playing it but I was no good at it and you know to to kind of have on your shoulders the legacy of your old man being a wallaby and and you're no good at footy what it makes you question everything else about yourself and you do feel it a lot like I, I always used to you know go should be so good at this sport. I'm, I just wasn't there. And do you find that affected like your schoolwork and affected, you know, playing soccer or, or you didn't go back to soccer because of that reason? No. So I kept on playing footy through to year 12, but I just wasn't that interested in it. And I guess, you know, the pressure of not being able to fulfill the shoes and, and a few other things, you know, like it, it was definitely a layer on top of a few other things that made my schooling life, you know, I wasn't that interested in it. I had other interests, you know, elsewhere. And I definitely felt the pressure combined of a few things. You know, I had um, ADHD undiagnosed until I was 19. So, you know, going through school undiagnosed with ADHD, wondering why I can't live up to the academic side of things, which is another point too, you know, mum's super smart. Mum's got a master's in law, she's doing a PhD, she's brainy as. And at this stage, I'm 13 to 16 going, I'm no good at footy, I'm not smart, like what am I doing? You know, where do I fit in this big wide world? And it was a tricky kind of situation where you're trying to find what you're good at and what's acceptable and 
what the the kind of what you what your friends are you know wanting to do. It's, it was a tricky time. And how were your friends then? Or obviously your friends were so supportive, but there would have been other kids at school that you know would have probably given you a tough time. To be honest, Rob, it wasn't the kids; it was more the teachers. It's more the 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 rugby community going like, well, here was this you know prodigy back in the eighties, and my whole Burke family all played first fifteen at Waverley. They all played first grade at Ramwick, and then there was me and my brother that just didn't really do it. And Lockie, my older brother, was an amazing athlete. I think he ran like a ten two or a ten three in the hundred meter sprint, like very quick. And I was a good cricketer, so. But still, we just didn't have that footy gene and it. it almost felt like we'd, we'd done something wrong that we weren't playing, you know, first, first grade footy. And you think that affected your cricket as well? You said you were quite good at cricket. Did that was still in the back of your mind? Yeah. So the thing that affected my cricket, which is related to the pressure of not fulfilling those shoes, was, you know, when I was 13, 14, I kind of realized I wasn't going to make it playing footy and I started drinking and I became, you know, it's not really saying you're good at it, but I was a big partier, you know, and I, I kind of tried to go out there and, and go as hard as possible partying to kind of fit in, to be a part of something. And that definitely took a really big toll on my schooling career, you know, playing cricket at year nine, I was playing, you know, A's and then, from then I just didn't really care and I didn't rock up. I was hung over Saturdays or I hadn't slept and it just kind of all fell apart there. When you're saying with the, with the drinking, was that something that was in hindsight, you thought that would help the pain of, of dealing with everything you had to deal with? I felt like it was going to help me fit in. Hmm. Like I said, when I'm looking at my old man playing professional footy, mum being very smart, and I couldn't do either, then, well, where do I fit in? Where, where's my kind of calling? And, you know, I wasn't going well at school. Sporting was just not happening. And I, I found partying and I could fit in. And it kind of relieved the pressure of all the, you know, the voices and, and the, the criticism. And that's kind of the route I took. And it definitely affected my schooling career, you know, um, and, and locked that in with undiagnosed ADHD and, it just it wasn't a good mix, and <clears throat> I really ran off with the partying um, quite early at a young age. And did you find then that just kept spiralling out of control? Yeah, yeah, it did. As you know, Hop, growing up in the eastern suburbs, you know, we hang around the beaches, and, and my, mates, my mates weren't just my age. It's you're hanging out with guys a lot older than you, and you're kind of in that circle of having a beer and, and having multiple beers, and it definitely um, – the parting was, you know, at around 15, it's where it really switched and, um, you know, illicit substances came into it and that's kind of where I just broke away from that normal childhood and, and kind of went down the path of, you know, every Friday, Saturday, Sunday going out, um, not much sleep and, yeah, it, it, it took a real, not dark at that stage, but that's the kind of way it was heading. And then that went on for a, for a few years and, Till you realised you were in this dark space? Did you realise at the point when it was that, look, hang on, I'm, I'm in a pretty bad place here? Yeah, so through the parting, the using, I think I was 17, maybe 16, 17, I actually developed serotonin syndrome. So 
you know, from the, 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 the illicit substances that I was using on the weekend, you know, ecstasy and all that kind of stuff, my brain stopped reproducing serotonin, which is a happy hormone. So I fell into a pretty deep, dark depression. That's kind of when I first asked for help and asking for help, mum kind of saw it happening. Dad was living up the coast. He had a successful business up the, up the coast of Crescent Head, but mum was seeing me every day and she knew that something had changed. And um, it got to a point where I was like, look, I, I feel, I don't feel normal. Um, I just feel blue all the time. I don't know what's going on. Um, I kind of did, but I, you know, I wanted to, it just didn't feel like the, the come down ever finished. And that's kind of when I went and got help for the first time around 17. And what was the outcome there? Did, is, when did you get diagnosed with ADHD? So the ADHD diagnosis came when I was about 19. So the first diagnosis was depression, which, you know, at 17, you're like, oh, it's, you want to keep it very private. You don't really want to let anyone know. You know, you're at that stage as a young male where you don't want to show weakness. So that happened and I think I had around two months, three months off school. I got diagnosed with depression. I had glandular fever and swine flu like pretty much all at once. Just my body was so run down. I saw, you know, I saw the people I needed to see, uh, medical professionals, and we kind of got back on track and I came good. And, you know, when, when you're sick and you have the flu, you get sick you get better and then you go back to doing what you're doing. So that's just what I did. I started partying again because I felt like, oh, I'm all good. But that kind of wasn't the case for me. And then by this stage, you're getting, I suppose, what, up to year 12 and, you know, then leaving school and then trying to, to get a job? Yeah, so year 11 and 12 were a relief for me. Being undiagnosed with ADHD, I took a, a path called non-ATAR, so I didn't do my HSE. I, I didn't get an ATAR mark to get into uni. So hmm. I completed year 12, but I didn't do much work between year 11 and 12. I, mean, I was making, um, I was in ceramics half the day and, you know, <laughs> in visual arts and English studies, and it was relaxing. And I guess once I left school, that's where I got a job and started earning an income. And again, the partying kind of took off. It's very clear in my timeline from, you know, 13 to 15, it's at a certain level, 15 to 18 at a certain level. And then 18 and above where I had a steady income is where it really shot off. Hmm. And tell us about that. Was that something that you thought you could control at the time? Yeah, I thought I, thought I was just like everyone else. You know, I thought everyone was partying like I was and felt the same way that I felt, but it kind of – once I really looked back and saw my, my behavior when I was partying, that's where I kind of figured out, okay, maybe something's up here. And, you know, I've, I've got a few people in my circle, family, friends that don't drink anymore. And they were kind of seeing my behavior and going, oh, maybe there's something a little bit extra here. And, you know, I always used to talk about, I'd have a conversation in the mirror, you know, Friday morning, all right, quiet weekend this weekend, just relax, no beers. And then Sunday morning, I'd be looking in the same mirror going, what did you just do, you know? And that was a kind of switch where I felt like, oh, okay, I may not have a handle on this drinking and partying. There may be something else uh, below the surface. And then was that something where you went and got help at that stage as well? Yeah, so I think 19... Oh, I had a really dark time, you know, and 
I was in a lot of debt. I couldn't, I couldn't hold a job or I just wasn't really turning up to life. And, you know, my mates and I'd go out Friday night. They'd go home Friday night. I'd come home Sunday night, you know. Gambling got involved. And at the moment, I can see for the younger generation, especially males, like the gambling is just, it's rife. And um, I was right in the middle of that. And um, I remember coming home after a pretty big session and mum just asked me, are you okay? And I replied with a generic yes, because that's just what you do. It's a subconscious answer. Everyone does it. Yep. And then she asked, are you sure? And it like broke that subconscious wall. And I just, bleh, I was just a mess and just everything came out. And that's like a very clear moment where we started to work on the actual reason of why I was partying like I was partying and what was happening below the surface. And did that take a lot off your shoulders? Was that a relief that you finally broke through to speak to your mum about it? Yeah, it's a relief for the first 24 hours and then and then it's like, fuck, I've got a lot of work to do, you know. Like I'm in the rosin heavily and for me – as soon as I ask for help, it's like, all right, well, if you want help, like you got to go do something about it. You know, you can get a team around you, but if you're not willing to do the work to get clean, then it's not going to happen. And that's kind of what happened. You know, I went into a, a clinic in the Eastern suburbs and had a bit of a break and learned some things and came out and I was great. I was like, you know, 50 days without a drink. This is crazy. This is great. And then went to an apartment and said, oh, I'm all good now. I can have another one, you know? And then it's just this repeating cycle of just going back to the, you know, back to the, the start line. And that happened for a while. And, and do you find that that it just by having that one beer just triggered it all off again? Yeah. It's the first drink that does the damage for sure. You know, one's too many and a thousand's not enough is a, is a pretty clear saying to the way I, I, I drank. It, it's, always the damage is in the first drink for me. And this is just my reality too. This is my experiences. As soon as I have a drink, all bets are off. I don't know what I'll do, what I'll say, where I'll end up and how long that session will go for. Completely powerless over that one drink. With the depression, was that times where you couldn't get out of bed you just or just lied around the lounge or you had no motivation? Yeah, for sure. So like... Depression goes into many levels and, you know, I'm sure everyone, majority of people have gone through that stage where you, you can't get out of bed and that, I had that a lot. Can't get out of bed, don't want to brush your teeth. A big telltale sign for me is that there's mess and it just stays, you know, my car will get messy, my room will be real messy and just I don't want to interact with anyone, you know. I find interacting with people when I'm depressed just I just don't want to do it. it. It's almost like it's too much energy to go through. And then there's other levels of depression that I have gone into where, you know, the, the suicidal tendencies come in and, and that's a much higher level, but they're both just as scary, you know, because you both feel like you're in a hole that you can't get out of. And you mentioned the suicide tendencies. Did that happen often or is just that was a thought that came in and out every now and again? For me personally, it's a it's a it's a different one like I guess you know the way that that came about was after a a really bad experience partying 
drinking in the middle of a depression episode, that's where those kind of thoughts would come in. So, you know, it's, it's not a nice place to be in and there's a lot of stigma about talking about it or, or being open about it. And I get it too, you know, you don't want to like, that's the, the, the clear sign that you are not coping well, you know, and it's a horrible place to be in. And yeah, it's a tricky, it's a tricky topic to kind of get into, but I'm glad that when I did go into those situations and those thinking patterns that I had enough, I'd listened enough and heard enough that it was okay to ask for help. And it was okay to speak about what I was thinking. Did you find, because a lot of kids, you know, teenagers would obviously have trouble speaking to their parents about things. Did you find it hard to speak to your parents? Did your dad come in and, and, and give you any advice and help? Or, or did you find outside people influencing was a better option? So when this whole thing was going down, dad was up the coast working, so he couldn't really understand what was going on. And I feel like the relationship with my old man, we was, it's still it's still the same a lot, I feel, with a lot of young men and their fathers that you don't really want to let you know, let your old man know how you're feeling in that sense, you know. So, but I was lucky enough that mum could see all the telltale signs and she made it very clear that if I was feeling a way, if I was feeling a certain way to reach out and, and let her know. And I felt comfortable enough because we had really clear conversations where if something went wrong, I did something wrong or I felt a certain way, I could speak to her and there was no judgment. There was no anger. There was no pointing the finger and, well, you feel like this because you've been doing this, this and this. So I felt comfortable enough to reach out to her um, without getting a barrage of information back. She just listen. And I, I feel like that's the biggest thing too. I feel like young adults and kids, they don't feel like they're being listened to, you know, they're, they're trying to express how they're feeling. And someone's going, well, you're feeling like that because you're not doing this and you're failing in here and all these outside influences where really they just want to express how they're feeling and just be hurt. Like you don't even really need to say anything back straight away. And I was blessed that I had a situation where mum listened. Because I suppose a lot of parents would be a bit into that, that dictating to the to the kids because they could probably see what's happening, but also they don't want to see the, the child spiral out of control and probably don't know how to handle the situation themselves. Yeah, for sure. Like as a parent, I'm not a parent, but I could imagine like you, your kid says they're suicidal. It's like instant panic. It's like, what do you mean? You know, and that reaction might come out you know, a bit aggressive or just not the right way. And then all of a sudden that pinnacle moment where your loved one asks for help and you react the wrong way, then it may, it may get into them that they can't ask it again. You don't want to stress them. You don't want to bother with them. A lot of the, I assume a lot of the reactions that come out of parents and loved ones is it's coming from love, but it's coming out the wrong way. And, and that's a really big thing that you know, if you get it right and you're there to listen and you come with good energy, then they'll feel comfortable enough to keep on speaking. And if it does happen again, open up. So up until now, did, did you find you understood your trigger points? Yeah. So from around 23, I'm 26 now. So 23, 22, 22, yeah, 2017. So 22. Actually, I don't even know what days. 
I'm getting old, Hob. Lost down a days and years. That's that's right, mate. Wait till you get to my age. <laughs> you want a bit to go there, don't I? <laughs> oh, I think I'm nearly your dad's age. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting older, calling in the great fox now. So at 22, I kind of put my foot down, and I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I said, "All right, I'm I'm going to give this a shot." And that's kind of where I, I I knuckled down and I tried to, you know, get clean and put down all the substances and the drinking. And that's kind of where I, I don't like the word reborn, but like I, I felt like I, I was back on track, you know, and I felt like I never was on the track, but I was making gains. And from that point, I think six months later, or maybe three, three four months is when I started working with you guys. So that's where it all kind of kicked off. You know, I put down the drink and all this good stuff started happening. And and it wasn't just putting down the drink, like, you know, go to a certain place every morning, speak to like-minded people going through the same situation. You do a lot of work, a lot of work on yourself and really breaking down the wall and figuring out why you were doing what you were doing and, and learning how to live without alcohol and everything else. And did you find then you thought you're clearer in the mind and then you could obviously you came and started working for us as a lifeguard and that's a, a quite a, a critical job because we're dealing with people's lives. So people listening can imagine you can't turn up under influence of alcohol or drugs because that could really cause a major problem for someone, you know, that's out there that needs to be rescued. Yeah, it wouldn't be good. Even hungover, you know, like you, you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't want to be paddling out, you know, and eight foot surf hung over trying to rescue someone. I guess when, when I put down everything else and, and kind of picked up life and I felt clear. Yeah, I felt great. I was fit for the first time. My mind was, you know, not, not chatter free, but I just felt a lot clearer. It's funny. People think you put down the, the drink and everything else and all your life problems go away, but you're still doing life. Like you get lifed just like everyone else but you learn how to deal with it in a in a proper way, you know. If I had if I got a parking ticket, I'd go to the I'd go to the pub and have a punt and have four schooners. If I get a parking ticket now, I assess the situation. Why did I get it? You were parking past the time. Like next time don't do that. So my 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 decision making got a lot clearer and a lot not mature, but I was just making better choices. And also is there times where you fall off the wagon or there's times where you think, oh, geez, I'm, I'm, you've had a bad day or something's gone wrong. I'm just, I'm going to go to the pub. Yeah. So I reckon it would have been a couple of years ago. You definitely, if you're not doing the work and not going to, you know, your daily programs and speaking to your like-minded people and doing what you need to do, if that drops off, for me personally, my story is I forget what it was like when I drank. And that's very dangerous because then I start to look at people having a beer at the pub, people having a wine with dinner with their partner, all those things is attractive as something that I would like to do. But in reality, I never was that person. I never just had one wine. I never just went to the pub and had two beers and didn't have a pint. Like my reality was so far different to those people. But if I didn't do my recovery work, then I felt like that's that's what it would be like. And you know, I've fallen off the wagon a lot, heaps, and it's excruciating. 
trying to get back on. And I'm happy to say, you know, the 5th of July when we're filming this, 17 months today, no drink. And that's purely because I put, you know, staying sober and clean first. It's my number one priority. And I know if I do that, then everything else will come to fruition. Yeah, well, mate, that's a great achievement, you know, 17 months. and But like people, it's tough because it's a constant battle, isn't it? It's not something that, okay, I'm, I've stopped drinking. And as you said before, every it just fixes everything. It's a constant battle day to day. Yeah, well, you gotta you gotta come up to situations in life where it's challenging. You know, like you're gonna go through breakups. There's gonna be deaths. There's gonna be losses of job. You know, financial situations that just doesn't stop. But for me personally, I'm able to go through those situations and know that a drink will not solve that situation. It will make it ten times worse. And that's the kind of way I go about things. So I, I'm very clear in. I choose every morning that I'm, I don't want to have a drink and I do that on a daily basis and it makes life a lot easier. You, you see people go, oh, I'm quitting drinking for 24 months and then, you know, a month they're, they're busted and they go, oh, it was too long. But if you do it 24 hours at a time, break that down, you're only awake for 15 hours of that day. It's a lot easier to do it in those small parts and make that decision every morning. That's great. I'm very proud of you. It's, it's unreal that, uh, you know, you're continuing on this path because I know how hard it can be, you know, day to day, just deal with life, let alone having to deal with this situation as well. Thanks, Hop. Yeah, it's good. It's a better it's a better journey to take. And like, you know, if you look at my last 17 months, went through a dark time and, and got back on the horse. And since then, I've, you know, I've gotten engaged, bought an apartment. I've got this fantastic job, you know, working in a crazy industry like cryptocurrency for this amazing company named Independent Reserve and just like the world is unlocked. It's all because I, I, I made the decision to live a life with a choice and, you know, you can put down the, 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 the drink and everything else and anything else is on offer, you know, and that's the great thing about it. Well, mate, I know you're doing well with your job and um, it's probably a bit more exciting than being a lifeguard. So. <laughs> Hey, I wouldn't mind coming back down. I see there's a few openings. <laughs> What's going on? Casuals. You never know, mate. The door's always open. It's always hey. open. Mate, now tell us a bit about Are You Okay? You're doing a lot of work for them. And I think your story that people have listened to gives you the knowledge and understanding when you speak to someone else who's going through the same type of situation you did. Yeah, it's a great it's a great non-for-profit. Are you okay? I love it. And and like I said earlier, I got asked the question from my mum, are you okay? And and it was that second question with are you sure that completely broke me and pulled down the walls. And I, I feel really privileged to be a community ambassador and to go speak to schools and to go speak to institutions about asking the question to your mates, to your co-workers, you know, and, and not just asking it once asking are you sure and really kind of make you know it, it's a foundation where you you're learning how to deal with the response that you get back as well because you could ask a mate are you okay and they go no and then it's like whoa how the fuck do i reply to that you know that's the tricky part and it's great being able to go speak and help other people um, figure out the dialogue and the best course of action and next steps for a friend, family member, co-worker that isn't feeling okay. And another part is 
depression's a silent killer. You can't see it. And, and it's the sad part about it that you might not know your friend's going through it, but there are telltale signs, like I said, about the messy room, not kind of being themselves. If you can catch those little instances, then you may be able to ask the question properly at the right time and at an appropriate time as well. And what would the best way be? Because there could be people out there listening that know, you know, a friend is a bit like that, that, you know, they can tell they may be drinking too much, the, the room's messy, and, but they're really hesitant on, on how do I approach this. Yeah, the best bet is just to ask and, and hit them with the, are you okay and are you sure? And if they're not, just listen. Ask them what's going on. Ask them, is everything good at home? Really try to get them talking about what is causing the depression, you know, and say anxiety. Anxiety is a big part of my story as well. What's the root of it? And really let them know that you're there to listen and not to judge and you're here to help and not to push them away. There's plenty of hotlines out there that you can sit down and call with them and sit with them for the first call and then let them go speak to the professionals. And I'm not a healthcare professional myself, so I'm always here to help and guide people to the right professionals that are going to give you the assistance you need, you know, because you can't do it by yourself. You need an army around you. You need a team, and that's kind of where the right route you should take. Do you think setting goals, like whether it's with work or whether it's with going exercising, does that help? Yeah, for sure. Goals are great. My fiance loves goals. She sets goals for 10 years, 20 years. I'm like, <laughs> I look a week in advance, max. <laughs> no, it's great I've got a partner like that. Very blessed. And that's another thing too. Like I've got the most amazing partner that supports me through everything. And, and to go back to your question on goals, it's always good to have goals. But if you're not getting them, if you're not reaching them, you know, put the whip away. Don't don't beat yourself up because you're not achieving it right now. You'll get there, you know. I wanted to be at certain places within six months and I wasn't there and I was, you know, beating the shit out of me. It's not the right way to go about things, you know. I've always been a big believer that you should set healthy goals and if you don't get there in time, assess what happened, assess what you can do better and set achievable goals. Yeah, that's the, that's a good way to look at it and, because a lot of people, like you said before, when someone said, I'm not going to drink for 24 yeah, months or something, which is a ridiculous amount of time to, to try and do. And as you said, have those smaller goals, which then build up into the bigger goal. Yeah, for sure. You know, like there's nothing better than ticking off goals on your, on your list or, or like a to-do list. Like I'll put the most simple things on a to-do list, but it's just that action of crossing something off and showing progression, you know. It's the same with goals for me. This is just for me personally. I like setting achievable goals that are not too easy, that are not pieces of cake, but I know if I work hard enough, I'll get there and they're within reach. And once I'm there, I go again and I go again. Because if you set some goal to be the CEO in 12 months, you're not going to get there. And all all you're going to be left is with this disappointment that you didn't achieve what you wanted to go do. And that's my reality is setting very achievable goals and, you know, it's worked great for me. I'm doing really well in business and life's taking off and I've just done it in small little steps. And would you have a lot of daily goals? Oh, my daily goals, I try to meditate. I try to do that with ADHD. It's pretty fucking... <laughs> I, I wake up hop, and it's like Josh FM, you know, talkback radio. So I have a cold shower every morning. That's a goal. And that's just this simple, you know, meditate 10 minutes. And mainly I try... 
I know it's very cliche, but I try to learn would be 1% better. Just learn one thing, you know. That's all that I can do because out of 365 days, if you do one thing or learn one new thing a day, that's kind of where I'm basing my goals at the moment. But it's, it's yeah, a great achievement. It sounds like you're, you're achieving those goals. And, I mean, I, have, I speak to you every now and again, but I haven't really sat down and gone through the ins and outs of, of what you actually go through. I've seen bits and pieces, but it's great to share your story. And I'm pretty sure it'll help a lot of people out there listening. Yeah, thanks, Hog. And that's the thing too, you know, like if anyone's listening, go to my Instagram, reach out. I'm always happy to chat, always a, an open ear and, and ready to listen and ready to help. And mainly my whole thing is just sharing my experience and what worked for me. That's the only way I can go about things, you know, how, what it was like, what it's like now and how, what did I do to, to do, you know, to get to where I am and still got so far to go career-wise, health-wise. There's big things on the horizon, but I'm very staunch that it's a, a day at a time and make sure I put the he- my head on the pillow without a drink. Mate, let us know what your handles are so people can get in contact if they want to. So it's just Josh Burke, B-U-R-K-E on Instagram. Well, Berkey, it's great having you in the beach shack telling your story and, uh, Mate, as I said, the door's always open uh, to come back and uh, do a bit of lifeguarding, but uh, I'm pretty sure the crypto world is uh, going extremely well. That's it. Anyone reach out? We'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Hop. It's been an absolute pleasure. Now let's go to Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack, we've got Wally. How are you, mate? Good, thanks, Hop. How are you? Good, mate. Now... As a lifeguard, we do a lot of resuscitations over the years. And I remember one of your first ones was with the double drowning. How did you find that? Yeah, that was a bit of a, a rude shock to the to the job. I mean, it's it's always good to to see what it's actually about, you know, like that's 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 the job. I mean, that's that's as real as it gets. It was in my first year and yeah, it was good to sort of get an eye opener like that. I mean, it was yeah, like I said, a shock to the system at the time. But yeah, you learn a lot from that and it's only a positive now that I look back at it. I mean, getting to experience that and then going into another uh, circumstance like that down at the beach, it's only going to help. Uh, yeah, it makes you just know what to expect kind of thing and you go into it a little bit more prepared. So, yeah, it was yeah, it was a lot to take in in my first 12 months there. But, I mean, uh, I, I knew in the back of my mind that's what the job was. So, yeah, it's all good. Well, it's tough... Um coming into a double one because I mean it's rare we get a double drowning at the same time generally yeah. we just get the one and the one you know person to recess but this yeah. one was like you know you had one group of one part of the beach and, and just a you know 50 meters down the beach is another recess and yeah you know everyone was coming from everywhere and you find people just seem to turn up from from wherever yeah, it's true. I mean uh, on that day we had a great team of lifeguards a lot of experienced lifeguards there so it, it almost didn't affect us in the sense that there was two things going on. I mean, the guys there really knew how to manage what to do. So, I mean, you had Corey there, you had lifeguard box and you had bloody Singo. You had, yeah, you had a good team there. And Chapo was even working on the uh, the camera crew for uh, Bondo Rescue. So he was there. So, I mean, yeah, a lot of experience there that day, which it's, yeah, it was good for me to be able to just follow those guys. And yeah, it looked like they always knew what they were doing the whole way through. So, yeah, it's, it's it's amazing the help that you get on those kind of things and you, you don't realise until you, you recess afterwards. But, 
yeah, a lot of people come from nowhere for for those kind of, kinds of incidents. Yeah. And you find it how quick things happen and, and how much you need to prioritise when you're going through a resuscitation? Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot that's going on. I mean, the main thing is just what what you've got to do next. I mean, you, you can't think too far in front of you of what's going on. I mean, you just look at what you have to do at that moment. So whether it's getting the person on the board and getting them in back to shore, that's, that's the only thing you can think about at that time. Um, otherwise, you just get it. Your, head, your brain and your head just become spaghetti and you don't know what you're actually thinking about. So I think that's something that I've learned just to think about what you actually need to do at that moment. And then, uh, yeah, just assess as you go. Yeah, there's a lot of different things that can happen at once. I mean, yeah, we're, we're only human. We can only assess as much as possible. And then after this happens, how do you uh, sort of wind down and, and relax after something that's you know, so traumatic? Yeah, it, it actually takes a lot more out of you than, you, than you'd think. I mean, I only realised that after experience. I mean, I just felt really drained for a couple of days, just flat. So I just tried to keep, keep into my usual routine of exercise and all that and just keep it simple, nothing too hard. But yeah, just trying to level out all the, the chemicals and levels in, in your body that you just don't realise having an effect when you, you deal with something like that. So um, yeah, I just tried to keep it simple for a few days and up to a week, and then just yeah, I got back to normal pretty quickly. It was all good. We got we got some uh, good help down there at the beach with, you know, counselling and talking to people and stuff. So it's yeah, it's all good. And you find talking to people it does help, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's just no point in keeping it inside. I mean, all the guys there, they've all they know what you're talking about. So like, there's no point not talking to them, you know, so it only helps to, to get it out and chat and they might have a different perspective on it than what than what you had. And, and yeah, it's, it's a very positive thing just talking about it. And that's what we're trying to do with a lot of other, you know, especially the young people listening to this podcast, they all have their issues through their life, but trying to get people to speak about them, it's uh, it can be quite difficult. And that's something that we've, started to do over the years. I remember when I first started as a lifeguard, mm. I used to get a pat in the back and, oh, you'll, you'll be sweet and yeah. off you go and that's it. But, you know, I think it's a, a lot better now when we talk to each other. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we've just seen from firsthand how beneficial it is just to sit down as a group and have a chat. And, I mean, yeah, it goes for any circumstance that you're in in life, I suppose. If you've, if you've got a community and a network around you, it's only going to be a positive thing. Just having a chat about whatever it is that's on your mind, it's always, it's always a positive thing. Okay, Wally, mate, it's great having you in the beach shack and uh, keep up the good work, mate, down there as a lifeguard. You're doing a, a fantastic job. Uh, legend hot. Thanks. It's good to be here. Cheers. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Richard, and he's from Sydney. He said, mate, I heard you have had COVID recently. Well, yes, Richard, I did. Uh, it's been about two weeks now uh, since I've had COVID. And I must say the first five to six days were uh, quite heavy. It was uh, tough with the fevers, uh, the sore throat, and uh, very lethargic and just wanted to be uh, lying down in bed. But uh, after the uh, sixth day, it started to get a little bit better. But even now, I still feel a bit flat. Uh, still got a little bit of a cough, but mate uh, well and truly on the mend and uh, thanks uh, for sending in your letter 
Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.